Hey, one more thing before you go. Growing up after World War II in a small southern town, struggling with the patriarchy, an anxious mother, panic attacks, artist block, and finding a husband who would support her twin passions of raising children and having a career. A doomed romance with a dashing French man, participation in guerrilla tactics to preserve historic buildings in Raleigh, North Carolina, physical moving and renovating a historic house. We're going to have a conversation with the author of the memoir, The Book of Ruth, Taming Ghost and Saving History, which narrates 50 years of saving historic places in North Carolina, creating art, raising two kids, to adulthood, and ultimately finding the right partner. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. This is One More Thing Before You Go, and welcome to Over the Teacup Sunday. guest in this episode struggled between a career that demanded a good deal of travel to document historic buildings and landscapes and acute anxiety triggered by that travel. Ruth Little's life as a child, adult, and professional woman involved investigating and battling ghosts as a historic preservationist, which I'm really excited about getting into learning more about that. She explored North Carolina's past, making new discoveries and fighting to preserve physical evidence that otherwise would have been destroyed and lost. At the same time, she was dealing with her own ghost and self-preservation. She grew up with a mentally ill mother and grappled with their relationship until she died. At age 21, she suffered her first panic attack, which felt like a near-death experience. These attacks with Ruth kept secret continued to plague her for decades, nearly every time she traveled. She created a memoir as a record of what it was like to be a professional woman and artist when such pursuits were actively discouraged. Her story includes a doomed romance with a dashing Frenchman, her participation in guerrilla tactics to preserve historic buildings in Raleigh, North Carolina, well done, and physically moving and renovating a historic house, as many more ups and downs as she pursued her passion for preservation while the field of, of historic preservation was still very young. We're going to have a conversation with Ruth about that amazing journey that is still going on and how you too can be inspired to create your own journey. Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. Hi, Ruth. Hi, Michael. How are Great you? introduction. Thank you very much. Um, I, uh, I really, uh, as I said earlier before we started, I really appreciate what you do. I think that uh, preserving history is a, an amazing opportunity to pass it on to the, everybody else in the younger generation and those who don't have the opportunity to stop and take a look because sometimes we don't do that um, and where you've come from and how you got here. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I always like to start in the beginning. So um, as I said, this is kind of a, uh, this is your life in a, in a different form. So let's start at the beginning. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Fayetteville, North Carolina. We called it Viet. Vietnam, because Fort Bragg, Air Force Army Base, is right next door, largest Army base in the world. And I grew up during the Vietnam War era. 
So what was your family like? Uh, typical nuclear family. My father was a, a, a land surveyor. My mother was a school teacher. And I have one brother and a middle class, very Southern, um, very conservative, very crazy. <laughs> I would I would imagine. I think we've all got I, we've all got a little bit of that in our families. Uh, families are <laughs> unique, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we all hold our we all hold our secrets, and uh, sometimes they're out on our sleeves. Um, <clears throat> so you've got a, uh, you you have siblings, and uh, the siblings still live in the in the, the yeah. south in the Carolina region, right? Right. And my my mother's family came into North Carolina in the 1600s. Wow. And my father's family came into the mountains of North Carolina in the 1700s. So there, I just grew up in this vast tribe, uh, East, Eastern North Carolina and Western North Carolina and cousins out the wazoo and just feeling like this is my state um, for 300 years. Oh, that's amazing. What, what, uh, I mean, from genetic perspective, that's like amazing to be able to take that all the way back that many years. That's, uh, not it all is. of us have that opportunity for that. That's no, pretty I cool. know many, many of my friends, uh, who, whose parents, whose, uh, grandparents immigrated through Ellis Island or great grandparents and don't even know they can't even get back before Ellis Island. So for yeah. me to get to back 300 years is truly, uh, that's a gift. Yeah. I guess that's why I'm a historian. Oh, yeah, it's a gift. I mean, that's an amazing gift. I, I, uh, even with my own journey, I can tell you my grandparents on my, my great, we would be great, great, great grandfather. I can't even find out where he came from. It stops right there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, yeah, that's an amazing gift actually. So you and I kind of grew up kind of in the same era uh, we were close um i know that you said that uh in the material that you had sent to me um, when we were talking about your family and how that was um you grew up with a mentally ill mother correct not correct what was that like uh it, it was stressful because she was so anxious that uh a lot of that anxiety got dumped on me i was the uh, older and had a little brother and I felt like I was always protecting him and myself from her. She didn't feel like it didn't feel like it wasn't the normal mother daughter relationship. It was like, who's the adult in the room? <laughs> I been there, done that. I, I think that unfortunately, <clears throat> I think that I grew up with, uh, with, uh, two alcoholic parents. And I think that uh, of that age group, um, I'm finding, at least through a lot of my interviews and a lot of my conversations with people, that um, that era of individuals, there seems to be a lot of, of this type of thing, whether it be alcoholism and or some mental illness and things like that, that um, we are more aware of because of the day and age. I think the educational system and the media has made us more aware of what mental illness actually is as well as uh, alcoholism and things like that so um did she have any were there any other issues that presented themselves would you have any alcoholism or anything like that oh no they were pretty much teetotalers uh and i 
they passed along really good genetics to me with the exception of the anxiety that I got from my mother and it's only manifestation are the panic attacks that developed at the age of 21. So you, um, you grew up in that area. Did you go to college? Went to college, couldn't wait to get out of my little Southern hometown and go to college and aspired to go to college out of North Carolina. But I wound up going to a finishing school because I could not get into the university of North Carolina because they didn't take under, uh, freshmen and sophomore women. So I had to go to a girl's school, which was supposed to be a finishing school. I was supposed to find a husband and settle down. But then I went on to the university and finished there, went straight on to get a master's and waited another, uh, about eight years later, I went back and finished a PhD. So what, 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 what did you want to be? Basically, when would you go to college for? Would you go to university for? I went to the university to. I, I thought that I considered myself to be have been born an artist. I was always the kid who got excused from class in elementary school or middle school to go to the back of the room and paint a mural for whatever season it was or the holiday. But then in in college at the university as a junior, uh, the uh, the modernist movement, abstract art. I got into a, an art class where I was painting reality and I was ridiculed for, for painting, not painting in an abstract modern way, which of course uh, made me do an about turn. And in, because I loved art so much, I decided, okay, if I'm not a real artist, then I'll, I'll be an art historian. I'll study other people's art. That's an, it, you know, it, it's sad when that takes place. As we had this right before we started talking, uh, I have a love of art, all forms of it. And uh, art is subjective. You know, each individual that looks at that art, as you and I both know, can get something different out of the art that we look at. I think that's really too bad that somebody stifled you in that regard, but that didn't stop you because I've seen some of your artwork that you have on your website and you're a brilliant artist. It gave me an artist block for uh, about 40 years. And, and it's part of the patriarchy because I, I talk in my book about what it was to get to the university and encounter all these male authority figures and to be told that, uh, you know, yes, we'll let you into graduate school and to, um, for my, this was for my PhD, but don't expect to have a professional career a prof to, to be a professor because most women colleges don't hire women. Oh, that's disappointing. Uh, do you, what do you, may I ask what time era that was? That would have been actually 1978. So fairly recently. Yeah, that's not too but long this ago. Is, this is the South. Yeah, that's, that's unfortunate. I think that, you know, especially somebody with the, your talent um, that, uh, again, that I've not seen it in person, but I have looked at your artwork on your website. And you, again, you're a brilliant artist. And I think that that's, a, that's just too bad. But you have overcome that and you have come through on a, on a very positive note with being able to create art as well as to express it in many different ways. How did you become a uh, historic how did you get involved in the like historic preservation and history? I, you know, my, my mother loved history, loved antiques, 
uh, collected everything she could. And eventually that uh, I came to understand that she was a hoarder and collected everybody else's photographs, all the photographs from all the family members on both sides of my family. And so I think I, I watched her and I rejected a lot of what she represented, but not her love of history. And she dragged us all over North Carolina to see the, the houses of famous people, Carl Sandburg, uh, other authors, um, historic Williamsburg. We, we did a lot of that in my youth and it imprinted on me, but then it wasn't, I was going to just major in art history rather than architectural history, historic preservation, until I got to graduate school and I encountered Professor William Jordy, who gave us it was a class in American architecture. And our first homework assignment was to take a brown paper bag and kind of open it up and a pencil and go into downtown Providence, Rhode Island, where I was in graduate school at Brown, and to take a block of buildings in downtown Providence and draw a picture of them and write a story about these buildings. And, and there I was doing the first field work of my whole life for architectural history at the age of, at that point, I was about 22 and talking to the people and these were, it was commercial, they were commercial buildings. I was talking to the shopkeepers and drawing the buildings and finding out what they knew about, about the history of the buildings. And I felt like I had, it wasn't even work. It wasn't even homework. This was sheer joy and that I, I had finally found what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. That's a brilliant, uh, professor to to take that perspective and to embark people on that journey because it allows them to open up their minds to more than just the book um you know experience the world and and touch it and feel it and yeah. listen to it and 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 you know experience it that's pretty cool so it, that was that was i finished that degree in 1970 1970 and in 1971 i got uh, the, my first job in my profession at the State Historic Preservation Office in Raleigh, North Carolina. It was the second year it had it had been in existence, and I, I my mission, if if I wanted to accept it, was to save historic landmarks in North Carolina, where I had so many contacts and so many relatives and all all over the state, and I just took it and ran traveled all over the state in a, a, sta a state car with my clipboard and my camera and my curiosity. That's amazing. Now, I, coming from, with obviously, all of your uh, relatives and kin, kin were all from that area. What did they think of that? By that point, I was an adult, and I, I, I don't know. I didn't see them very much anymore. Mm -hmm. But I always, when I would go somewhere, particularly somewhere where I wasn't, I was doing surveys for part of what I did after I left state government is to be a, a, a consultant, I established my own business. And I had to go out and tell people who were in the pathway of a new airport or a new highway, some kind of federal project. I had to tell them that I was surveying for the route of a new highway or a new airport. And they they understood that 
what I was doing was going to threaten their whole existence. But they would, they would say to me, well, who are you? And I would tell them, depending on where I was, if I was in Eastern North Carolina, I would tell them about my, my aunt who lived in a town nearby who had been a school teacher. If I was in Western North Carolina, I would tell them about my grandfather who had been a doctor in Boone in the mountains. And instantly they would realize that I was, I was one of them. I was not an unfeeling state bureaucrat. And so then I could do the work I needed to do. And they knew that I was going to represent them. That was very convenient. That worked out really well, didn't it? it much, much better. I, I had a, I was a good field worker because I could relate to everybody. It's always nice. To, it's always not in, in any environment you go into, which really makes it more beneficial when you can relate to somebody and empathize and understand from that perspective. So that, that's pretty slick, actually. Um, I know you tell me about you went to France at one point to study, didn't you? I did. My my it was actually in my senior year of college at the University of North Carolina. And I, I had the chance to be in the, the year abroad program in Lyon, France. And it was the first time I had left. I hadn't done even much traveling in, in the United States, barely gotten out of North Carolina. So there I was in France at the age of 21 for a year, learning the language, uh, traveling all over. We just took groups of us took, uh, got on trains and sometimes we hitchhiked and traveled all over Western Europe and even a little bit into Eastern Europe. Barely went to college at all, but we learned a lot of French. And in every single way, I instead of being a Southern Baptist uh, um, pro provincial little girl, I became uh, a sophisticated citizen of the world. Yeah, that's an amazing journey. I love France. France is, uh, especially for the historical perspective of France. And what what a good reason to uh, play hooky from school. That's what it was all about. It that's was it. an education of the world. Uh, yeah, it, it well, yeah, and, and the history, I mean, that, again, we mentioned this before we started. Um, my wife and I love history. It, that's one thing we do have in common with our marriage, and we're very lucky for that, is that we both have a passion for history, and we study everything that we have the opportunity to to learn about the history of France, the history of England, the history, I mean, not not just what's on, um, what is it, the, and I'm probably going to mess this up, the Crown or any, or Bridgerton or anything like that. I mean, we go into the actual history uh, of these things. And we, we've been married, well, this year is 33 years. And we've been lucky enough to have that uh, connection between us that we both love that kind of history. And um, we, because of some COVID and some other situations, we haven't had the opportunity to go out and walk in history like we've wanted to, but you have. So, you know, that experience within itself, as you started to become a the historic preservationist, let's talk about that journey. How, how did you evolve into that? Well, my, my, my graduate degree is in art history and architectural history. And the way, really the way to, uh, the way to, uh, I, I was like a public historian 
And so a public historian is trying to save history in a public way. My way was to uh, study old buildings and when appropriate, either create historic districts so that they could could be, uh, for, for example, like um, the oldest blocks in a, a, an urban area, a downtown, or a particularly important neighborhood, or individual very old farmsteads, factory buildings, old factory buildings. Um, I've put, I've, I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of National Register nominations and local local um, historic landmark designations that have saved buildings and neighborhoods and parts of downtowns and, and parts of the countryside that would have been lost. Well, that that within itself, I think, is would be very self-satisfying in regard to it because you're contributing back to society in such a way that. Um, th that lives on and, and it doesn't get destroyed. So if, from that perspective, I think <coughs> it, part of your book, um, you talk about that journey in becoming a that preservationist and what you do and how you do it. Because I know you've written some other books in regard to uh, specifics that you've worked with, correct? I, yeah, I don't, uh, to me, if, if I have built up a great deal of information an understanding of something artistic or historical, then I am I am being derelict if I don't put it into writing so I can share it with other people. For example, when I wrote my doctoral dissertation at, at the University of North Carolina, I chose graveyards, gravestones, because I had had a very special, I had made a vow to myself to protect at least document old graveyards in North Carolina because I had seen them being destroyed by developers who wanted just in the middle of the night, just bulldozed. Really? So I had found this incredible grave marker in 1974 that was from the 1700s in a family graveyard down uh, on the Cape Fear River near where I grew up. And I, I didn't take a picture of it because I was there to do the architecture, the old farmhouse. And I went back two weeks later to do document that grave marker and it was gone. Wow. It had been taken out of the graveyard and, and it was an incredible relic of um, this was the, these were um, Highland Scots that had come into that river valley up the Cape Fear River in the 1700s. And that was one of the grave markers that they had created. So it was uh, priceless and it was gone. And so I said, okay, one day when I get the chance, I'm going to go around all over North Carolina and I'm going to at least get photographs and documentation. So they're not, so that people know about these amazing, um, uh, burial monuments that reflect our early history and our culture. So I did get a chance. I got a two year national endowment for the humanities grant in graduate school. And I spent that, that two years all over North Carolina documenting gravestones and graveyards. And I created a book that came out of my dissertation called Sticks and Stones, Three Centuries of North Carolina Grave Markers. And I say grave markers because they're not all stone. Right. People make graves, grave markers out of whatever they had. Um, uh, very strong wood like cedar and heart pine would be used for grave markers. 
in the eastern part of the state where there was no stone and a lot of field stone in the western part of the state. And African-Americans often used, they, did a, they made a lot of homemade grave markers because they couldn't afford to buy a gravestone. Mm -hmm. They made them out of concrete, very creative. Um, they placed articles, uh, they, they would take um, grandpa's uh, pocket watch and embed it in a concrete headstone that they had made. Mm -hmm. Um, seashells were made, were used for, to mark graveyards. So my book, which came out in 1998, um, published by the Uni University of North Carolina Press, has, I've, I've found people all over the country who, who want me to sign their copies of the book. It's being used all over the United States. That's amazing. That's, that's amazing. I mean, I think, to think that, it, and I didn't realize this until you brought that up there, to think that, um, Developers would go in the middle of the night and just bulldoze a graveyard. I never thought that that would take place. Yeah, a family graveyard, you know, small, and maybe there weren't that many grave markers there, and they whatever they could get away with sometimes. Well, that's too bad. I mean, what a shame. But brilliant that you had that opportunity to go and create that environment for that to live on uh, from that perspective. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think that obviously with you, my title, one more thing before you go, we talk a lot about death and dying and honoring that in, in those forms. And uh, that in itself would be would be part of that, honoring that. Uh, so thank you for doing that. I mean, I don't know anybody in South Carolina. Uh, I don't have, well, actually I do have a relative in South Carolina, my cousin, North. or North Carolina, excuse me. Um, my cousins, yeah, I have a cousin that lived there, him and his family. They grew up, they are in North Carolina at the moment. Uh, and he's grew up there. He's a pastor out there and uh, a coach and works at one of the universities, uh, religious universities over there. Um, mm. But yeah, that's cool. Very, 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 very cool. Very cool. Um, your, what, what inspired you to write your memoir, the, your journey and your, and how you, because you've overcome quite a bit of stuff. Uh, throughout your life's obstacles, basically, that have thrown them, you know, you, you've had some loss in your life, you had the loss with your parent, you with your mother, you've had loss uh, other than that, uh, to work your way back around to, uh, to where you're at today. At the, in 2018, I had been doing almost uh, 50 years of historic preservation. And I thought, and writing the history of so many communities, so many families, so many individual people, architects, etc. And I thought, I'm an antique. I, I'm old enough to be, I'm history. Why am I not writing about myself? Why am I not using all of this, sharing all of this perspective that I have on the, the era that I've lived in with uh, future generations? It's, it's just, a, I'm a writer. I, if I know something, I want to write it down and, and share it with people. So what I know is that I've had uh, a very blessed life, a very adventurous life. Um, I keep getting back up and, and if I get knocked down, I keep getting back up and trying again. And I want to write this all down for my children and uh, young people all over the, all over the world. You know, I know you call it the Book of Ruth, and it is your journey. It is everything. It's, it's a memoir, but it also has, um, 
uh, historical preservation built right there within it, at least from your area. Uh, and it, what, can, what can we learn from that book? I, to me, it's <clears throat> that uh, the power of looking at things, uh, because historic preservation, I'm preserving things, I'm preserving buildings or graveyards, historic landscapes. Um, I even get into obviously sculpture uh, with the grave markers. The, the, it's people think that you have to research in books to understand art and architecture, but sometimes it's just a matter of looking at it. And I've looked, in fact, my forte is looking at very, very humble um, buildings that people have created, log cabins, um, traditional farmhouses that never had an architect. They were simply built the way uh, everyone in the community built. And people think they're not historic and they're not important, but tr to me, truly, they're much more important than the the Monticellos or or the um, the the works by great architects because they represent the, the 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 beliefs and the culture and the history of ordinary people in the United States. So I think you can learn how to how to look at these these treasures. And in some cases, hopefully you can protect them and take from them this understanding of, of the glory that is our past. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, that's, to me, coming from an individual um, that loves history and loves art. Uh, and when you, when you have the opportunity to, I, I think today's day and age, I guess, if I, if I present it this way, unfortunately, in today's day and age and watching development, and it, you had touched on it before about, you know, just wiping over people's graves with no respect of, of who was there and how they got there and why they're there um, and moving forward. Sometimes progress forgets about the value of history. The, it forgets about the value of where we have come from um, more so than, you know, what can I build? How big can I build it? And uh, you know how much money can I make from it? It we forget, we forget, and and that's a terrible thing I think in today's day and age. Um, so pres preserving that is a key to helping it to live on. You know, in some form or another. My last this last project that I finished up in 2018 was a survey of everything in Raleigh. Uh, built before 1975. So this was um, what they call the recent past. I was working from World War II to 1975, so 40, 30 years after World War II. And I got into all of these suburbs that were built during the post-World War II boom in Raleigh. And only a very few of them were built for African-Americans. They were largely Middle, built for middle-class white people. And I, I focused in on these African-American suburbs and realized uh, what the story was. African-Americans uh, were, were, were um, they didn't have the money to buy property. They, they, there were no black developers. 
And so in the beginning, black developers had to cooperate with white developers to create new uh, places for uh, African-American families to live. Even veteran, black veterans who fought for us in World War II were cut out of um, uh, VA loans, FHA loans. They didn't even get the benefits that white uh, veterans got after World War II. And I was able to, to identify three historic, three suburbs from the 1950s and 1960s built for African-Americans in Raleigh and get them listed on the National Register. White people in Raleigh didn't even know these neighborhoods existed. They were behind, they were on the other side of the tracks, but they are, what is so interesting is these suburbs of, of homes, small homes, are built in mid-century modern style, which was a style that was not, not popular among white people. White people wanted colonial revival houses that represented the old South. And black people wanted mid-century modern, modern architecture that did not have any stigma of the past that they were, they were, they were, they were looking to the future, not the past. That's interesting. <clears throat> From that perspective, that's really interesting to see that the the different viewpoints from on there. One wants to move forward, you know, and, and the others want to stuck they stay stuck in the past. Uh, and that's the South right there. That's the mm -hmm. essence of uh, you know the lost cause. Um, the golden era of the South was before the Civil War. Well, I I have to say that that it, that's disappointing from from that perspective. I think that um, uh, that's a whole another conversation. <laughs> but I, I'm glad that you were able to kind of achieve uh, that opportunity to showcase those, that area and to showcase what was about to be lost and, and kind of move that forward. Um, I, I you got I know you married you have married. Uh, somebody that you went to school with with history or was also a history major as well? Uh, alas, I, I, I've had two marriages and I'm now in my third um, and final wonderful relationship. And and this relation in this relationship, I have a partner who loves what I do and would never let me go out on a on a project out in the field without him being there because he loves it so much. That's that's a great that's a positive that's a, especially in this day and age, so kudos congratulations for that I'm glad that you met some, one and that you're living the life to the fullest and that it's going in the direction it's supposed to, and you're able to pass yeah. that on to others so very nice, um, <clears throat> I was going to ask you if he went on any of your little journeys or any of your excursions uh, but you you kind of just answered that that's got to make you feel really good too. Well, writing the memoir taught me so much about myself. Uh, you know, I think all of us, as we, as the years, the decades go on, uh, there are things that we, we think we failed at. Uh, if we look, could, could look back, we'd say, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have, I got, I shouldn't have given up the opportunity to take that P new PhD that I got in the early 1980s and go out and, and teach architectural history and historic preservation. But I was not able to do that because 
uh, I married at the same time that I was getting the PhD and his career kept him from leaving Raleigh and there were no jobs in Raleigh. And so I coped by, I sold real estate for a while. Um, I wrote some books and uh, went, to, went back to work for state government. And I always regret, I, I don't regret our two wonderful children, but I did regret the chance to have had that. I felt like I would have been able to influence many more people if I had had a teaching career rather than uh, a documentation career. And then I realized as I was writing the book and looking at all this, all the young people that I hired to help me go out and, and document old buildings and all of the articles that I've written, all of the organizations that I've helped to found, all of the books that I've published. If I had been a, a professor, I wouldn't have done, I couldn't have done any more than I already did kind of as an independent scholar. And so I realized I can let that, that failure go. It wasn't a failure at all. I, it, it was what was meant to be. Well, you know, it, I, life always puts us on the path. I think that we're supposed to be. Sometimes we have some obstacles that get put in the way, but you know, those obstacles, we either overcome them, which you have 100% and, or you, we always allow them to set us back. Um, but in your case, you moved it forward and you've progressed and you continue to preserve you. I think you've, you have renovated and saved some houses, uh, of your own during this journey, haven't you? Oh, um, many, I just love old buildings and I'm a rescuer. Um, and I think that comes from my mother who would buy, she bought a lot of old furniture that needed to be repaired, but because she the, the thrill was in the acquisition and not the restoration. She never restored them. So I'm the restorer and I love to restore old buildings. And the most amazing restoration that I did was to buy the second oldest house, 1775 house, a plantation house in outside of Raleigh that was had to be moved or it was going to be destroyed for an office building. And I, I bought it for a dollar because it had to be moved. Uh, absolutely beautiful, well-preserved house. So I moved it 15 miles to a, a very suitable location with a lot of big oak trees and restored it and, and lived in it and wrote a book about it. Um, it's called Carolina Cottage, uh, a personal history of the Piazza house, because this small house, one and a half story house from 1775, has an amazing front porch that that swoops out the, the main roof of the house creates the porch. It, it's a, an engaged cottage type of house, which was very popular in the deep south uh, because of the extreme heat. And I am so proud of saving that house. And our, our, the, my book, Carolina Cottage, is all about that house and all the other houses of this type which are not, um, they don't have the big columns. They're not, they're, they're not uh, prestigious houses. They're not classical revival. They're very vernacular. They, they were built for the climate and they're strictly utilitarian. And um, people don't, they look at them and they, they don't realize just how significant they are for the South. But you do. So that's, that's a fantastic oh, yeah. 
fantastic opportunity to help. Uh, I think that uh, doing that kind of work and preserving that those kind of uh, situations, those kind of houses and in that history, it's just a wonderful thing. I know I keep saying it, but uh, I can see it. When you talk about it, your face lights up. For those listening to the podcast, your face lights up. You can tell that it is a passion of yours. And I think that passion expounds itself within your books and, and with, within uh, the book of Ruth because it, it, you, you, you exude passion with it. Uh, I, what a gift passion is. I, I wish passion for everyone I, and, and just for everyone to find that, that thing in life that, uh, that is their passion and be able to do it as a career. Yeah, so it, I think life would be much better if we, if we all got the opportunity to follow our passions and make a living at it. Uh, do you? Uh, 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 let me see one second here. I had a, I had a question, and then the question kind of disappeared. Now, speaking of history, it it is now history. <laughs> um, let me start here. So did you ever get the opportunity to teach? I, I've taught many at seven or eight institutions, uh, all the way from universities to technical institutes as part-time adjunct, never, you know, never on a, a, a tenure track. So in some ways, I'm happy that I most of my career was as an independent scholar because I'm a pretty cussed independent person and I like to be able to identify what needs to be done and go ahead and do it and not have to work with a committee. <laughs> that yeah, that works. The red tape always seems to always seems to stand in our way of progress. So that's a good way of approaching it. Um <clears throat> so let's talk about the book of Ruth and how somebody can find it and um and uh, get it, and uh, about your brilliant art, which I've got a little uh, piece that I've shown of some of your art, but where can we find you? Well, my website, uh, which has my uh, historic preservation and my artwork, is ruthlittle.com. And if you'd like a copy of this book, it's available, of course, on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, and I'm working on getting it into bookstores in um, in Central North Carolina. And how about it's your other? Also, I'm sorry. Yeah, the other books. There, the other books are on Amazon and in libraries in North Carolina. Sticks and Stones is in libraries all over the country. So we can find you at at ruthlittle.com, and uh, the, I can also look at your artwork there, which we're going to talk about in a second here. Uh, we can look at your artwork there as well as your books. And I'll make sure that that's in the show notes for you so that everybody has the opportunity to uh, make sure that they can connect with you in one form or another. So you, you, you're, you've been an artist, correct? You went and you've kind of taken your own path with art, the artist. You didn't listen to that one professor that not everything had to be abstract. Uh, and the, some of the stuff that you've created is really brilliant. So um, tell me the feeling you get when you create from, from the brush perspective. It's all about color. 
I am passionate about color and I get to interpret the real world in all the colors that I love. I don't have to, if I don't, if I look at a landscape, I'm, I'm not going to just paint green and brown and blue. And I get to, I get to show people what it is about whatever I'm painting, uh, what it makes, what, what's so special about it. Um, I found an old type of building in on the coast of North Carolina in some old family photographs. These buildings are gone now, but they're called fish houses and they were built on pilings out in the water uh, for the fishermen to store their their crab nets and their um, trolling nets and all their equipment and and could get to them. And, and they would, of course, tie their boats up to these fish houses. And I created a series of paintings, fish house paintings which uh, using magical colors and sort of magic realism to show people what these buildings that are gone now to, sh to bring them back, at least in my paintings, so that people could, could see what early, North, or early 20th century, late 19th century North Carolina looked like. And, and people just were transported by these. And sometimes in the, I have boats in, in the paintings and there are mermaids frolicking in the boats. Well, you got to have mermaids. Have to. Got to have mermaids. Have to have mermaids. Water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. And obviously, so now you are, in my opinion, you're living uh, a very, very full life of purpose because of your everything that you've accomplished between your preservation, your um, your work with preserving history in such a way that we can all experience it. And you're in, you become an artist that makes you happy, and uh, you can then pass that on to make other people's happy. Other people's, pardon me, other people happy. <laughs> yeah. well, so, and I, I do. I hope hope that this will inspire people to never ever give up on their passions and what they dreamed of, of doing when they were young. Don't ever give up on those dreams. So we can use the Book of Ruth as a guidebook to understand our own journey and then create our own journey to the same path you took. I hope so. That was the idea. Ruth, thank you very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, this is one more thing before you go. Do you have any words of wisdom for anyone out there that uh, is aspiring to follow in your footsteps? Don't listen to the uh, the negativity that you got when you were young. Don't listen to people tell you that you can't be a writer and an artist. And I got told that many times. You can't do both. You have to choose. No one knows what you're capable of doing until you do it. Brilliant words of wisdom. Thank you very much yeah. for sharing those. Ruth, it's been an amazing journey. Thank you for sharing it with us. I'll make sure that uh, everything is in the show notes so that, uh, Anyone looking to find you, your book and your artwork uh, can find you on the web. And uh, thank you again for joining me. Thank you, Michael. This has been a joy. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter.
You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day. Have a nice week. And thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.